0: Father, we thank you that you are a God who has created all things. God, that you are our Father in heaven. That you are separate from us. You are different from us. You are perfect and righteous and a whole host of other things that we can never be. But God, we thank you that you are a personal God. That even though you are completely different from us, you love us and have mercy on us and have grace on us and want to be in relationship with us. God, we thank you that even though we as people rebel against your rule and we have corrupted your creation that you still sent us a Redeemer. You sent us your Son to save us. To save us from sin, to save us from death, to save us from who we are as people. God, we thank you that while he was here, while he was living a perfect life on his way to a death of sacrifice on our behalf, he spoke words and taught and preached and healed and ministered and, and took disciples who he taught. And that because of that, we have your word. We have the New Testament. We have the Gospel of Matthew where we can read and, and study and learn about who Jesus is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. God, we thank you that your Spirit inspired Matthew to write these words that we're going to read today. And we thank you that the same Spirit helps us to understand them. So, Father, we ask that your Spirit would move in us and among us today. That the verses we read wouldn't simply remain words on a page, but they would change us, God, and through us that they would change others. We thank you for Christ, and it's in his name we pray, amen. So as you can probably guess from my prayer, this morning we are headed back to the Gospel of Matthew. We, we kind of took a break for about six weeks and went through Ephesians, and then we had last week off because we were doing the, the missions conference with Calvary. And so today, this morning, we're back in the Gospel of Matthew. And before we, we jump to the passage that we're going to be covering today, I kind of want to give you guys... Just, just a summary of what we've seen so far as we've gone through Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, what we see there is, is Matthew's presentation of the birth of Jesus. It's, it's the first introduction in the New Testament that we get to who Jesus is. And the first thing that Matthew starts with is a genealogy, this, this long list of names, and through that genealogy, Matthew communicates to us two main things, that, that Jesus is a son of Abraham and he's a son of David. Now we know that, that Jesus isn't literally Abraham's son. His dad's name on earth was Joseph. We know he wasn't literally a son of David. Again, his, his adopted father's name was Joseph. What Matthew's telling us is that Jesus is in their lineage Abraham is one of Jesus' ancestors. David is one of Jesus' ancestors. And and what those things tell us is that Jesus is a person who is qualified to inherit what they were promised in the Old Testament. Abraham was promised uh, by God that God would make him a blessing to all nations. That through him, through his descendants, through those who would, would come in his lineage, God would bless the whole world. David was promised that a king would come in his line, in, in, in his family, who would rule over God's kingdom forever. So, so right there at the beginning, Matthew tells us that because of who Jesus is, because of who his ancestors are, he's going to be this person that the Old Testament had promised would come. Later in Matthew 2, we find out that Jesus is the king of the Jews. We find that out through, through Gentiles of all people. In Matthew 3, we get introduced to this guy named John the Baptist who who says that it's his ministry to prepare the way for the Messiah. We find out later that the person he's preparing the way for is Jesus. Jesus comes and he's he's baptized by John. And when he's baptized by John, this, this voice speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. So so we know that Jesus is a son of Abraham. We know he's a son of David. That means that he's going to be this, this king that is going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And then in Matthew 3, we find out that he's also, and more importantly so, he's the son of God. Because there were lots of people who came before Jesus who were related to Abraham and who were related to David. But no one. No one has come before this point who was a a son of God in the same sense that Jesus is the son of God. And so right there at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, we find out that this this guy named Jesus who this story is about is someone that's, that's different from anyone that's ever come before. In Matthew 4, Jesus starts his ministry. And Matthew tells us that his ministry consisted of three parts he he would teach he would preach and he would he would work miracles he would heal people and, and do things like that and he also gives us the the core of Jesus preaching and teaching and that is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand so so there's this this guy who's this king who's the son of god who's going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth and he comes and he starts teaching and he teaches repent the kingdom of heaven is at hand Matthew 5 through 7 is a passage we're probably all familiar with called the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus kind of gives the the most significant section of teaching that we have in the Gospels on what it is like to live as a, a citizen of of this kingdom that this king is is bringing in matthew eight and nine Jesus does all these miraculous things and the reason why he he does that and the reason why they're they're, they're framed the way they are is because at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, so Jesus has just said all these amazing things about about who he is and about who we as his followers should be and Matthew makes note of the fact that the crowds reacted a very specific way. The crowds, Matthew tells us, were astonished at Jesus' teaching. They were astonished at his teaching for a very specific reason, that, that he taught them as one who had authority and not like their scribes. So the Sermon on the Mount ends with this, this question of authority, as if who, who, who is this guy? He's saying all of these things. Why, why does he claim to have this authority, and, and does he really have it? And then what we see in Matthew 8 and 9 is that Jesus demonstrates his authority by doing all these different things. He cleanses a leper. He gives uh, sight back to the blind. He makes the the paralyzed unparalyzed. He casts out demons. He ministers to people that no one else will minister to. And then at the end, he even raises the dead. He demonstrates that he has authority over sickness, over disease, over uh, demons, and even over death itself. He's showing that not only can he say all of these things, can he teach with authority, but he can also demonstrate that he has that authority by by doing these miraculous works that God has empowered him to do. In Matthew 10, Jesus calls the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, and he sends them out on mission. And as he does that, he, he tells them what their message will be, and he tells them what their mission will be. Their message is the same message that Jesus gave all the way back at the beginning of Matthew 4. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he sends out his disciples to go out and say what he said. He also gives them their mission. They're to go out and they're to to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. That sounds a whole lot like what Jesus did. So his message is their message his mission is their mission and they're to go out and do these things that they've seen this guy who is different from any other guy that's come before who's who's this king who's bringing this kingdom who's going to bless all the nations through his ministry matthew matthew 11 and 12 this the conflict that jesus has with the jews some people reacted like the disciples. They, they followed Jesus. They wanted to be like Jesus. They wanted to, to teach like he taught and, and to minister like he ministered. But other people didn't react that way. The Pharisees rejected Jesus. They opposed Jesus. And through Matthew 11 and 12, that, that conflict gets greater and greater and greater. And we're going to see that trend increase as we go through Matthew until the end where they kill him. In Matthew 13, mainly because of how the Pharisees responded to his teaching, Jesus starts to, to teach the crowds in parables, in these, these stories, in these almost riddles, where he is, he is revealing to them the realities of the kingdom of heaven in ways that everyone won't understand. He doesn't want everyone to know what he's revealing. He's only showing it to specific people. He's only revealing the, the full story, as much as they can understand the full story at this point, to the disciples. And he teaches them that the kingdom of heaven is, is different than what they were expecting. Because of, of how the kingdom has come in Jesus, That the, the people of God are going to coexist in the world alongside the enemies of God. The kingdom of God uh, comes in a way that they weren't expecting in that it starts out really small, like a mustard seed or a little bit of yeast. And then through that, it grows into this great big thing that affects everything. And he shows them that the kingdom of heaven splits the world into two groups. You're either someone who is in the kingdom or you're someone who's not in the kingdom. There's no middle ground. There's no third way. There aren't any other options. You are either in the kingdom following Jesus or you're outside the kingdom not following Jesus. And then comes Matthew 14, which is the chapter we're going to finish up today. What we see there is that Jesus is, is... at the beginning of the chapter, he's, he's seeking solitude, he's seeking privacy. He's just found out that, that Herod, who is the, the king in the region that he's doing most of his work, is going to oppose him. So he's had these, these Jews, these religious leaders oppose him, and now he's going to find out that the government is starting to oppose him. And Jesus reacts by, by seeking solitude, by seeking privacy, by, by withdrawing from the crowds so that he can have time in prayer. But that doesn't work out because he gets in a boat and he goes over to the other side of the the lake and then by the time he gets there, the people have already rushed around to be there with him. And Jesus ministers to them anyway. This is where he feeds the 5,000 and then right after feeding the 5,000, Jesus walks on water. He gets in the boat with his disciples. They recognize and say, truly, you are the son of God. And then... We pick up today. And if, if I were to, to sum up everything that we've seen so far up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, it would be this. Jesus is the promised king who has brought his salvation and his kingdom to earth. Jesus' teaching, preaching, and miraculous works bear witness to the fact that the kingdom is indeed at hand, and everyone needs to repent and believe in Jesus. So Jesus is this king that, that everyone's been waiting for. He's the son of God who's going to be the blessing to all the peoples of the earth. He's, he's brought the promised salvation that the Jews that really the whole world was waiting for. And because he's done that and because he's he's doing things like we're going to see him do in our passage today that bear witness to the fact that he is indeed speaking the truth. He is indeed who he says he is the people's responsibility in our passage, our responsibility is to repent and believe. And so right here at the beginning, before we even get into the passage, we need to recognize that that this isn't just a story. It's not just something to, to summarize and, and think about and and marvel at the amazing things that Jesus does in the pages of scripture, we need to recognize that these things are true. And just as much as as all the people who Jesus spoke to, who who saw him, who, who touched the fringe of his garment, who followed him, who opposed him or rejected him, just like for all those people, the kingdom of heaven divided the world into two groups, it does the same exact thing for us. And so, if you're here today, you are in one of those two groups. You were either someone who is in the kingdom or someone who is outside of the kingdom. And what we see in the Gospels is that that's, that's not a place that, that we ever want to be. Thankfully, what we find out as we progress in Matthew as we see how it ends and what Jesus does at the end of the Gospels and what the rest of the New Testament unpacks, we find out that this Jesus, who is this promised king, he's not like any of the other kings. And that's really good for us. Most kings, when their subjects disobey or rebel against them, the kings punish their subjects. They smash the rebellion. They kill people. They throw people in jail. They, they judge them for what they've done. But Jesus became like us. He became as one of the people so that he can save us from our sins. He came to, to pay the penalty for us and for our rebellion against him as King because of that we need to respond to what he said we need to repent and believe because the kingdom is indeed at hand and we will all have to reckon with that let's start by by reading our passage this morning we're going to be reading Matthew chapter 14 verses 34 through 36 you don't have a Bible, there's some at the... I guess they're not at the end of the rows anymore. They're under the rows. And uh, this morning's passage is on page 820 in those Bibles. Again, that's Matthew 14, verses 34 through 36. And when they had crossed over they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. The main point of of today's sermon, the main point for us, is that Jesus was known for his ministry to the fringes of society. Jesus was known for his ministry to the fringes of society. And, and obviously, for us, if, if we are people who say we follow Jesus, who claim to be people who want to be like him, who claim to be his disciples, who claim to be believers or or whatever word you want to use. If we are people who are following him, then we should be like that. People should know us for our ministry to the fringes of society just like they knew him for his ministry to those people. And we're going to unpack this as we move through the passage. So right off the bat, verse 34, it says, when they had crossed over, so just as I explained in Matthew 14, Jesus had gone over to one side of the lake seeking privacy, and now he, he's come back, he walked on water, he uh, has arrived at the other side of the lake, back where, where the people were. And he's arrived at this place called Gennesaret, or however you pronounce it, and it's a, a city on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee that's that's kind of in the in the same area, but not necessarily as as Capernaum. It's on that side of the lake. And it tells us in verse 34 that the men of that place recognized him. So Jesus and his disciples, they get out of the boat, they're, they're, they're coming to shore, and these people see who they are, and they know who they are. And what's interesting about that is that up to this point in the Gospels, Jesus hasn't been here. Jesus hasn't ministered in this place. He hasn't done things in this place. There's there's no record of him having any ministry in Gennesaret. This is the first time the city comes up in the Gospels. And he shows up and the people know him. And someone just got an email. So they know who he is. And it's... I think even more than that, because it would be easy to, to, to read this and think, oh, they just, they recognized him. So that's, that's that guy, I, he's, he's related to that carpenter who lives in Capernaum, not too far from here. Right, we, we recognize people, we see who they are, we, we maybe know their name, maybe we don't know their name. But what we see is how they respond, it means they didn't just know who he was. They didn't just know his name was Jesus. They didn't just have some sort of familiarity with him. They knew who he was and what he did. He was known for a very specific thing, and we see that in how they respond. It says, When they recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick. So he shows up, they recognize him, and then they do something. They say, go out and get all the sick people and bring them here. They did that because they knew Jesus had a reputation for doing things like he's about to do. He had a reputation for being one who would heal people, who would do miraculous things. And so the minute he shows up, they know who he is, they know what he can do, and they send out so that people can be brought so that he can minister to them. Jesus was known for his ministry to these kinds of people. And that's important because other groups that we've encountered in the Gospels, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and and probably even the Romans, they, they didn't want to come into contact with these kinds of people. The Pharisees especially because they were, they were obsessed, as we're going to see next week, they were obsessed with, with outward kind of ritualistic ceremonial purity. They didn't want to become unclean because that meant for them that they couldn't go worship in the temple. They couldn't do what, what they thought they needed to do for God to be pleased with them. And so they, they would do almost anything they could to keep from being unclean. And so when they would go through a crowd, they wouldn't want to touch people or bump into people or, or let sick people or anyone that could potentially make them unclean come into any kind of contact with them. They certainly wouldn't do what Jesus does here where he actually lets them touch him. But Jesus wasn't that way. He was known for his ministry to these kinds of people. And Matthew here is vague. He says, brought to him all who were sick. He doesn't say how they were sick. And I know for me, a lot of times, when I've I've kind of just read this passage quickly and haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it, I just picture just just these people with like colds and, and flus and seasonal allergies just kind of being brought to Jesus and Jesus healing them all. But I don't think that's a really accurate picture of what's going on here. I don't think that what happens is these people see Jesus. They know who he is. They know what he's going to do and they just kind of go from house to house and say, hey, does anybody have a fever? Is anybody, is anybody sick? Does anybody have a cold? I think these people go out and get specific people. I think, I think they know, hey, there's that guy who lives down the street from me or whatever they had and he's got whatever. He's blind. He can't walk. He has a hemorrhage like the lady we've already encountered in Matthew. Maybe he has some sort of demonic problem, some sort of sickness caused by that. Maybe he's blind. Maybe he has leprosy. Maybe he has some other skin condition. I think they went out and they brought back specific people who had long-term conditions because they knew Jesus was there and that Jesus could heal them. Probably with that, there were the random people who just kind of weren't feeling good. But I think if if that's the way we see this, is just this kind of simple him getting rid of people's sniffles. We are, are failing to appreciate what Jesus does in this passage. He shows up, the people recognize him, they know what he does in other places because it is spread to them. He hasn't been there. He hasn't told them. Other people have told them. And they respond and go get these people who are in need of his ministry. In verse 36, we see what happens. They implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. These people show up and they implore Jesus. They, They beg him. They ask on these other people's behalf, right? The they hasn't changed. They sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him. So it's the same people that went out and got the sick people that are asking Jesus to to intervene on behalf of the sick people. And they want these people just to be able to touch the the fringe, the, the edge of his garment so that they can be healed. We shouldn't see this and think that Jesus' clothing had some sort of miraculous power or magical power, as if what he wears is where his power comes from. We know from what we've seen in the Gospels that that's not true. These people are healed by Jesus, not by his, his fringe. He's the one who does the work on their behalf. And I don't even think it's a matter of faith. In this day and age, a lot of times people wrongly will say that if, if you're sick and you're a Christian, well, it's because you don't have enough faith. If, if you just believe that God would heal you, you, you won't ever get sick because we know that Jesus can heal us. And we do know that because that's what Scripture says. But, but if, if I think in myself that if I can just muster up enough faith and then Jesus will, will take away the cold that I have or, or whatever I have, then what I am doing is I am placing faith in me. I'm placing faith in, in my faith and my ability to have enough of it. And that's not what these people do. These people recognize Jesus. They, they know who he is. They know what he can do. And they believe because of who he is that he can heal them. They believe that even if they just, they touch him, the edge of him, that he will heal them because he is powerful to do that. It's his power that heals, not their faith, not his clothing, not our faith. Jesus was known for his ministry to these kinds of people that no one else would minister to. And for us, when we think about how how this, how, how Jesus was known for these things. Now, he ministered in these ways about how that connects with us here today. I think there's, there's two main things we need to recognize. The first is that we can't ever forget that he has healed us. I'm not saying he's healed us from a specific disease. Maybe he has. But he has definitely healed us from our biggest ailment we've ever had, and that is our problem with sin. Jesus has done away with it once and for all. He was the the once for all sacrifice for sins. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. Because Jesus has come, because he is our redeemer, because he is the one, as Matthew tells us, who will save his people from their sins, Jesus has healed us in that way. He has made us whole. We know that, that all sickness, whether it's a cold, or paralysis, all sickness is a result of the fall. It's a result of the fact that we, as people, rebelled against God. And I know that, that we weren't there. I didn't eat the apple. You didn't eat the apple. But I think we all know ourselves well enough to know that given the chance to disobey God, we will if he doesn't intervene on our behalf. Because of the fall, corruption, death, sickness entered the human race, and Jesus is healing that. This is why if we were to skip ahead to the end of the book of Revelation, it it tells us that in the new creation, in the new heavens, in the new earth, there is not going to be sickness. We're not going to get colds. People aren't going to be paralyzed. We, We aren't going to have to deal with any of that. Jesus does minister to the fringes of society, but he also ministers to the rest of it. And all of us are here today because he has healed us. The second thing that we need to consider, both as as individuals and as a church, is how does... How Jesus ministers to these people connect to how we should minister. He was known for this. He showed up in a place and the people acted on what they knew about him. If BC gets together and we all put on our BC shirts and we go to a specific part of Hannibal, are people gonna know what we're there to do? Are they gonna know what what type of ministry we do? that we care about people less fortunate than us, that we care about the widows and orphans, are they going to know that about us or are they going to think that we have a softball game or something else? Am I known for that on my street? Are you known for that where you live? If someone has some sort of problem that they don't know who can help them with, are, are we people that come to mind? Because these people are in this situation and they see Jesus and they know that he can be the one that will help them. He's not just able to, he's willing to. He's eager to. And it says that that they implored him. But from what we know about Jesus, there probably wasn't much of that. They requested and he did it. And to be honest... I don't know the answer. I, I don't know how we get from where we are right now to being like that. To where if, if someone in our city has financial trouble or emotional trouble or, or medical trouble, they think, talk to those people at Believer's Church because they can and they will help you. Not because we have any kind of power or ability on our own, but because we follow Jesus who did the same thing but that's what we should desire. I should want, not because of who I am, the people on my street to come seek me out when they need something because they know that Jesus has changed me in such a way that I'll help them. You should want that in your neighborhood. You should want that with your friends. We should want that as a church. And so my question, and this is a real question, this isn't rhetorical, what do we do? We've done this before at BC a couple times where application isn't something that I just tell you to do. I don't just give you a list and you go out and you say, all right, I've, I've done everything that Dan says. I'm, I'm good, especially on a thing like this. And so I want us to talk together this morning since, since this was a, a shorter sermon anyway. At least I think so. What are ways we as individuals... And, and we as a church can become better at ministering to the fringes of society in, in Hannibal or in the world at large. And, you know, since no one ever wants to be the first person to, to give a response, uh, I'm just going to pick someone. See, Devin's leaving. I would pick him. <laughs> Sure. It's, good.
1: it's building agenda-less uh, relationships. I mean, Tim and I have worked in the same field of you know the fringes of society and the individuals that come in for services. sort of emotional or, you know, maybe even financial attack when like so. something is
0: taken from them. Um. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Jesus' clothes when they touched him probably got dirty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, what you, you said made me think of, because even agendalists, like a lot of times as Christians and as churches, like the the agenda can be evangelism. And I'm obviously not saying we shouldn't share the gospel. We should share the gospel. But if we share the gospel with someone who we're ministering to and they don't believe it, a lot of Christians will cut and run when that happens. And that's the worst witness to the gospel we can give. Uh, Matt Chandler has this quote where he says, he's talking about their involvement in in a similar ministry. And he says, we don't do these things because we want them to become Christians. We do these things because we are Christians. I think that that's what we see in this passage. Yeah?
2: Yeah. I thought, you know, because I I, I think that we can reach the parents, you know, the children, yeah. The yeah. I don't know how to do that. But um you know, we have a, a big, huge opportunity in this community to reach out to people who need spiritual help because they're getting like I said, all the social services, you know,
0: I mean, yeah, the, the unreached are certainly the fringes of society. Yeah, that, yeah. I think that the more we do stuff here, like, it, it's impossible to stop there. Yeah. And we shouldn't, like I know as a college student, is easy to fall in the trap of of saying, I'm going to go there and do missions. I'm going to go there and minister to these kinds of people when I'm unwilling to do it here. Uh, James McDonald, who, and there's a lot of stuff that this guy does that I don't like, but uh, he, has this, he, he has this way of thinking about evangelism or discipleship or w- whatever that I think is really helpful, and it, it ties into what you were saying. That it, He calls it the, the difference between green apple evangelism and red apple evangelism. So uh, we do green apple evangelism most of the time. We, we have this, this guy or this girl who we think, you know, Steve is really nice. He's a good guy. I, I work with him. He would make a great Christian. <laughs> and so I, I'll, I'll invite him to church. I'll, I'll share the gospel with him. I'll, I'll bring him, you know, and, and then God will, will save him. But if we compare that to most of our testimonies, that's not the way God worked in my life. In my life, something happened and I was looking for an answer. I was looking for someone to tell me which way was up. And there was somebody there. And that would be like red apple evangelism, where we are, instead of you know, targeting specific people, not that we can't do that, but being out in the community and, and building relationships with people that we wouldn't build relationships with, so that when God does intervene in their life, there is someone there that they can turn to. And in order for that to happen, we need to be out in the community. You know, I can't stay in my office and do pastory things all the time and expect some of these people just to wander into my life. College students can't just hang out on HLG's campus all the time and expect some of the poor people from Hannibal just to come on campus to hang out. Besides, I think the new security force would take care of that quickly. (laughs) yeah i think that yeah pe- it's it's people on the outside unwanted unloved unclean in biblical terms So now we know if we get a text from Matt this week. (laughs) Yeah,
2: I, I completely agree.
0: And even the like, love your neighbor as yourself. I and mean, like, what what would I want somebody to do for me if I was in that situation? A lot of that? Um, and how that connects to this? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that just that we we overcomplicate this and make it into an us versus them, when, when reality, it's whoever it is, whether it's annoying, poor, sick, it's, it's us treating them a certain way because they are a human being created in the image of God. You know, we talk about the issue of, of justice, whether it's social justice or criminal justice or, or whatever, but we normally just think of justice in this, this negative sense. You speed you get pulled over you get punishment you get justice right but there's also a positive side to justice justice is, is is giving people what they deserve whether it's good or bad criminals get punished but also there's the this this person is is a human being they were created in god's image they're to represent him to the world because they are that because they are god's image they don't deserve to starve to death they don't deserve to be addicted to heroin. They don't deserve to be beaten by their parents. Right? Justice isn't just negative, it's also positive. It's us intervening on behalf of people who who can't help themselves. Do that Okay. I mean, I would I would love to talk more about this with anyone if if you're somebody who has a thought, but doesn't want to talk in front of everyone. I, I get that. Um, but I would encourage all of you, uh, both as individuals and about us as a church, how can we do these things more effectively? Be, be praying about that. Be asking God to, to give you a, a vision for how we can do this. And if you think of anything, and I, I would love it if you would send me an email, send me a text. We can get together and have lunch, as long as you're a guy. Uh, if you're a girl, you can come over to our house and hang out with me and my wife. But I would I would love to to talk more about this because I, as I said, I think it's something that that we're not doing well. We we aren't known for this like Jesus was, and I think that we should be. So let's let's pray and then. Father, we thank you that you have created us in your image. And that you sent Jesus to restore that image in us after we had corrupted it with sin. God, I thank you that Jesus is our example in everything but sin. And I thank you that we don't have to guess at how he lived his life. We can read about it in your word. We don't have to guess about what would Jesus do. We just have to follow him in discipleship as we strive, not out of an effort to earn your favor, but as a response to the grace you've shown us as we strive to, to live our lives more like he would. God, help us to make his name known in our community. God, we want Jesus to be known here for ministering to the fringes of society. And lead us in that both as individuals in our personal lives and also as a church. Not so that we can point to ourselves and say how great we are, but so that as your word says, people would see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. We thank you for Jesus' death on our behalf. It's in his name we pray.